0: Hello there and welcome to the audio commentary for The Hunter from 1980, the last film of the late and great Steve McQueen, Hollywood legend. My name is Nathaniel Thompson from Mondo Digital and joining me here today is Steve Mitchell. Hi Steve. Nathaniel, good to be with you once again. Yes indeed. Uh, So now as you might have gathered from this opening crawl here, this was actually one of the earlier films to deal with the modern bounty hunter to actually give you the definition here. Uh, if you were a Western movie fan, you're familiar with the idea. Um, Clint Eastwood, for example, had rather famously played one many times, along with lots and lots of other Western stars, but the idea of a bounty hunter on the loose in a modern American city was kind of a new thing at the time, so that's why they had to give people this little preface here, so they knew what the heck was going on.
1: Yeah, and in point of fact, just because everything in life seems to be circular, the thing that made Steve McQueen so famous was his TV series, Wanted Dead or Alive, which he did for Four Star where he played
0: a bounty hunter. And, uh, of course, ironically, The Bounty Hunter would enter the popular lexicon like never before this year, but not because of this film, but because of another 1980 film, which was The Empire Strikes Back, where he had Boba Fett playing The Bounty Hunter. That's true. A character That's who's true. still with us to this day. And after that, we had films like Midnight Run, for example, uh, which I think is maybe the greatest of modern Bounty Hunter films, really certainly the funniest.
1: Yeah, and in some ways, I think a little bit inspired
0: by this movie, wh- so. whether it was intentional or not. At least, I would say, at least Robert De Niro's character was definitely has some, some, some... Thorson in him, I think, in his DNA, for sure.
1: Yeah, well, I, it's, it, it's interesting how a guy who's basically following the law, maybe even more closely than the cops is considered an outsider and uh, certainly unwelcome by law enforcement, so uh, it, it's an interesting idea for a hero uh, because essentially, why does he do it? He does it for money. He's a mercenary soldier, except being on a battlefield, he's you know, going to neighborhoods like this or neighborhoods worse than this to go after his prey. Now, I, I guess because McQueen is having such a hard time parking, we might as well say that <laughs> yeah. it was his idea yeah. to make Ralph Thorson such a lousy driver. Yeah, this is not
0: biographically accurate at no, all, by the way. No, they, uh, there are a few little character quirks they added to give him some "quote-unquote" color, some character seasoning.
1: It's it's really true, but it's also it. In a sense, it's a, a tone setter. Uh, For the picture. And I think as we go through this commentary, we will point out that there are certain tonal shifts that I believe are reflective of the uh, screenplay history. But it was kind of nice to see Steve McQueen do something where he's a little comic because early in his career, He had done, for Blake Edwards, Soldier in the Rain with Jackie Gleason, which is a really interesting movie and worth catching up with. Mm -hmm. And then he did a picture at MGM called The Honeymoon Machine, which was a rom-com. McQueen refers to Love love with a Proper Stranger as a comedy. I never really thought of it as that, but McQueen does have comic chops. He is a very savvy screen actor, as we know. I think... As movie stars went, his greatest gift was he knew how to perform for the camera. Like what he just did with that dollar bill, the way he folded it. McQueen is a very business-oriented actor. Probably he is best when you think of how he handles firearms. But he's just very good with stuff, with props, with things. And right out of the gate, you just see him make that little move with the dollar bill. Little, small,
0: real, but very McQueen. Yeah, absolutely. And, again, he—I mean, he, he's considered sort of the ultimate cool actor out there just because he you know, sort of exudes that gravitas on camera, even though he doesn't seem to be doing anything. But just he kind of knows where to, like, put his head. He knows when to sort of lower his head and have the eyebrows kind of arched and looking up.
1: Yeah, I mean, just like this scene here. We're not on his face, but the way he swings the 45 into frame. Now, McQueen had been in the armed forces. I think he was a Marine. And he was really, really good with firearms uh, in movies. Him and Lee Marvin, I think, were kind of the kings of of using firearms on screen. You know, he does it with such authority, he doesn't even look like he's trying. Mm -hmm. But again, it just goes to one of the things that just makes him so fascinating to watch. It's the little things he does well. But I think we should go backwards before we go forwards, just for a little context. This project sort of began uh, in 1976 when uh, Michael Winter was originally attached to direct the film. And, uh, but he dropped out and then eventually um, Peter Himes kind of came on board, but when the project went to Paramount in 78, it started out with a script by Columbo creators Richard Levinson and William Link, who have no screenplay credit on this picture, so whatever they did was probably thrown away, or there was so little of it uh, that they didn't warrant a credit from the Writers Guild. And Peter Himes, who was writing and directing in those days, had done a script. And I think it was after he had done the script that he was more or less, I think, released from the project. Mm-hmm. Uh, I personally would have loved to have seen the Peter Himes take on this picture. Well, it would have been very different visually, that's for sure. Yes, it would have. For one thing, it
0: would have been in scope. but.
1: <laughs> that's true. That's true. But uh, Himes is a guy who... Uh, has shot in chicago a number of times and the movie eventually winds up in chicago right now we're probably in kankakee illinois which is uh, another city in illinois which kind of doubles for a number of different places that ralph thorson goes to earlier in the picture but the movie winds up in chicago but uh, peter heims uh, the couple of times he's worked in chicago basically shot the hell out of it he was very much at home with that city
0: Well, if you want to get an idea of what this one turned out like, take a look at a film he did in the mid-'80s called Running Scared with Gregory Hines and Billy Crystal, which actually has a really big chase scene on the Chicago L that's obviously, I think, tied to what he probably had in mind for this one.
1: I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, maybe that was an idea that was in his script. Now, he is one of the two credited screenwriters. Uh, Again, going more towards the comic tone of this picture, uh, LeVar Burton is constantly fixing things with uh, similar results. But... um, you know, early on in the game, before Steve McQueen became attached to the picture, Lee Marvin was considered for the lead role. And then, you know, you start to think of the what-if movie version of this story. And I think Lee Marvin would have done an interesting job playing this character. It would have been different than what McQueen did. Uh, but I'm so glad that McQueen was able to do this picture, uh, because at this time, he pretty much knew he had lung cancer and he was feeling it. And later on in the movie, we can discuss certain moments where I think the rest of the crew started to realize he wasn't completely himself. How
0: did you find me? And uh, if you're familiar with your 70s TV history, it's probably no surprise that McQueen was a big fan of Laura Burton um, hiring him for, because of his role in Roots. Yeah, now I had read, and I
1: don't know if this is really true, but this character was originally considered to be a dog. <laughs> like this that this character was supposed to be a pet, um which I'm not entirely sure how that would have worked, but um you know Steve and Lavar Verton are actually really kind of you know charming i wish I wish Burton had had more to do
0: yeah, but uh, well but it, it's it's fun seeing him. And of course, after this uh, Burton went on to fame you know Star Trek next generation and uh, as well as becoming one of our all time great uh, social media celebrities <laughs> uh, to put it mildly he's an amazing it's writer. really true, isn't it. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I, I have no idea if we're gonna be able to get his thoughts on Steve McQueen on this desk. But it would be nice to actually get an in-depth interview with him.
1: I, I think he was very grateful to McQueen. I think to get to get a shot uh, in working a fi- with a film who was a le- was a film star who was a legend. You know, uh, sadly, after McQueen had done Towering Inferno, he kind of started to take time off. That uh, he was, I think, bored with making films. Um, and the sad part was that at the time he started to walk away from being in movies, he didn't have much time to make more movies. I think the saddest thing about watching this movie to me is, even though he was 50 when he made this film, and he was insecure about his looks, uh, when he did Tom Horn, which is a very underappreciated Western, which he did prior to this, uh, he was talking about you know, having the beard that he grew for Enemy of the People because he thought he was looking old. Now, I don't know, I think Steve McQueen looks
0: pretty damn good for a guy in his 50. For, I was for gonna say, he doesn't look, old. he doesn't look that much older than he did in The Blob, honestly, I mean, he's a little more more creases in his face, but it's not, I mean, it's obviously still the same guy. He didn't, I mean, I think age aged, him really well, I, I think
1: there's one or two shots where he you go, well, he looks older, but he doesn't look a whole lot older than he did in The Great Escape. Yeah. Or some of his earlier, you know, and now classic pictures. Now. thank you. And again, McQueen has got this really nice, subtle comic touch to this character. And I think the smile that he has for Ben Johnson is, the, is a real genuine smile of friendship. They work together, of course, in the getaway. And, um, you know, I think, I think McQueen really admired Ben Johnson uh, and, and who didn't. now. This always sort of surprised me. This is clearly on a sound stage and that's supposed to be Houston out the window. Right. But when he pulls up and he's going through his ritual of bad parking, that location just doesn't attach to me for this location. But um, it's just one of those things where you just go, okay. <laughs> yeah, whatever. It's a movie. <laughs> it's a movie. And if you're thinking more about locations and backgrounds and stuff like that, you're not really appreciating Steve McQueen and Ben Johnson.
0: Right. And of course... Uh, Ironically, uh, in, in the Hollywood hierarchy, it's funny how things work out, of course, that by this point, Ben Johnson had an Oscar, whereas Steve McQueen was never so blessed. Yeah, he was only blessed with one nomination. And
1: I think if Steve McQueen did anything wrong regards Oscars, he's, he made it look too easy. Yeah. You know, you didn't see the acting going on. Um, now, Eli Wallach, uh, who went to the Neighborhood Playhouse with Steve McQueen, Eli Wallach will show up later on you know, basically said that he thought that McQueen was a, quote, whale of an actor. You know, he really held McQueen in very high regard as an actor. I don't think anybody didn't hold him in high regard as a movie star. He was, I think, if you're going to rank the greatest movie stars, I think he's got to be in the top five, Uh, mostly because of his king of cool presence, but also just an incredible savviness about what to do and what not to do in front of a camera.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, he's definitely part of that same generation, like I mentioned, Clint Eastwood, for example, Lee Marvin, those guys where it's like, they had a persona, but they were also really good actors, but they did a good job of making it. Yeah, just they blended in so skillfully that it was just almost like second nature to them in a way I think people kind of underestimated how much work it took and how much refining that, that it took to actually create that.
1: It's really hard to make it look that easy. And there was something about McQueen who pretty much from the gate. I mean, if you watch The Blob, you may see a little, little bit more of an, an insecure young actor at work, but pretty early on, he just became very comfortable with the camera and knew what to do for the camera. Um, and we don't have people like that today. I mean, one of the things we talk about a lot on our tracks is that old school movie stars bring a certain undefinable quality to the experience and watching them and paying attention and they, they draw you to the screen. It's not just about performance. And I still I think McQueen is one of those guys where if you put him in a room of two hundred people, somehow your eye would find him. That's what he did. And um, you know, again, these I, I love the way he sort of is assessing this building. You know If you watch Bullet, there's a great moment in Bullet where he walks into the room where the the killing took place, and it's really two shots. It's his point of view, and then the camera's on McQueen, and he's just looking and thinking. And, again, we're getting that in this scene, like he's going, well, this is not going to be easy. Mm -hmm. And he's trying to figure out the best way to do it. He's not saying anything. He doesn't have a buddy to say, well, why don't we try this or why don't we try that? This is all coming out of McQueen's performance, which is really, I think, for me, the joy of watching or re-watching this picture.
0: Yeah. And I, I remember, um, at least from my perspective, because I was a kid when this movie came out, I remember it, uh, the critical response being kind of vicious towards it. Um, uh, I don't think there was a kind of about it. I was watching some reviews, uh,
1: not watching reviews, but go, uh, uh, looking back at some reviews, and basically
0: all the critics... Yeah. Uh, some were kind, they thought it was okay. Yeah, but. like I, there were some of the newspaper reviews that I dug up in the archives were actually like not as bad as I remembered them being. I think I'm also a bit tainted because of, of you know, back back in the 80s, um, some of you may remember, you know, one of the Bibles was the Leonard Maltin movie guy that he put out every year, and he always mm-hmm. had, and he had this one listed as a bomb. That it was like, mm-hmm. his of wor- see Queen's worst movie, I mean, it had no redeeming qualities. He just hated this movie for some reason. I, I don't know why, he just had a grudge against some films. He also hated taxi drivers, so, you know, whatever. Um, in- interesting contrast. So, <laughs> so, you know, take it with a grain of salt. But um, but I remember, like, well, 1980 was kind of a strange year because, in, you know, in, it, in a way, it's, it's the last year of 1970s sort of filmmaking. In mm-hmm. a way. By the time you get, especially by the time you got to 82, it was a whole different ballgame. Everything was different. But um, but there was kind of a passing of the guard because this was around the same time you had, like, Alfred Hitchcock died, you know, and then, of course, like, Cary Grant died not so long after, and you had John Lennon getting assassinated. And Steve McQueen dying, I think, was a, kind of a shock to people because, I mean, obviously it wasn't, you know... Um, obviously, had lung cancer. It wasn't out of nowhere, but just it was sort of like the end of an era in a way.
1: Yeah, and this movie, in many ways, to me, plays a little bit more like a '70s picture. Yeah, it does. Um, you know, that's that's it. that's an interesting that happens with movies that sort of are released on the cusp of of of, of a new decade. Mm-hmm. And since this movie had origins in the, in the '60s, not '60s '70s, it still ha- feels like the '70s. And. Uh, Again, McQueen was not in the best of shape. Um, He just was not as, he didn't have the ability to be as physical. Now, part of the cutting here is really good, but uh, Gary Combs, I think, is a stunt double. But again, it's interesting to see how McQueen plays this scene somewhat comically. You know, (laughs) that's an interesting take. And maybe it's, for Steve McQueen, that's almost a little broad, but he did have origins... Uh, as a comic actor it's not like this was the first time and i also love the fact that they took the time to show that he's worn out from this you know he got thrown around this kitchen yeah yes. that's amazing ben johnson you know <laughs> is sort of brought back so you have two scenes with ben johnson But he probably only worked a day yeah we barely had to move so you know he act, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's true ben we want you to sit down and just do a scene with steve mcqueen okay
0: and weirdly back to back he had actually uh, he just went up to canada to go make the movie terror train with this mm-hmm. which so he was making some really interesting career choices at the time
1: yeah you know the pro the problem i think for any actor who is a senior is as good as you can be and even though he had won that you know, much-deserved Oscar for The Last Picture Show, mm-hmm. he was still a senior actor, and and parts were hard to come by. Yeah, I was You know, Ben Johnson was doing work with John Wayne in the beginning of the 70s on things like The Train Robbers, and he was still kind of a cowboy. Bye-bye. But at this point, I think Johnson was taking the parts he could get. This, yeah. is, this, is an interest, <laughs> this is an interesting bit of visual comedy, you know, combination of the leaning of the car Yeah and then the right turn signal
0: the car was also McQueen's idea that is not the kind of car that thorson drove in real life as well of course not (laughs) the
1: the car is essentially a metaphor for the fact that thorson is an old-fashioned kind of guy right and uh that thorson doesn't like new stuff Mm -hmm. this is an interesting shot to me because it shows a los angeles that was in transition, it doesn't really exist anymore. Modern Los Angeles today is much different than you would see in films from the 70s and the 80s. Lots of TV shows from the 70s would shoot in downtown, uh, and then shows like Hill Street Blues would shoot in downtown, doubling for the Northeast or Chicago. They never told you what city that was, by the way. And this movie has now got a little bit of a time capsule quality, which makes it interesting to me because this is not the, this. is not Los Angeles of today.
0: Yeah, yeah. There are two other films that were shot in downtown LA that have kind of the same flavor. They get the same footage on film. Uh, one would be another another Ray Star film called *Seems Like Old Times*. They actually have some downtown stuff, and also uh, *When a Stranger Calls*, which came out in uh, '79, but that was also shot in some of the same locations. So if you're a a vintage LA uh, locations junkie, I would say you could watch either of those with this movie, it's, and,
1: uh, and and I'll throw the driver in as well. Walter yeah, back oh yeah, yeah. Seventy-eight,
0: yeah, seventy-eight. Yeah,
1: that you watch that movie today, and you just go, boy, that is not the LA that exists today. Today's Los Angeles much more modern, uh, even slightly futuristic looking. Mm-hmm. And the LA, the reason why I find this interesting is, is uh, I moved to Los Angeles, you know, some decades ago, and and change has a way of of, of putting its fingerprints on a city. And with the exception of Downtown, which was somewhat vertical, Los Angeles is a very horizontal city then, and it has since changed. Um, That for me is like one of the uh, enjoyable things about watching old films is to watch how time changes, but yet the movies are still immortal and they don't change.
0: Yeah, Downtown LA has literally moved up a lot (laughs) since then. Very much so,
1: yeah. Getting back to McQueen, and this was part of what was considered McQueen's sort of trilogy comeback. Now, the first movie that was released after Towering Inferno, which had been his last movie for a while, was the little scene, the extraordinarily little scene, and Enemy of the People, Um, a movie where Steve McQueen is barely recognizable with long hair and a really big beard. Um, I've never seen it. It's that's how little seen it is. Well, um, it's on
0: DVD though, if you're if you're curious um, or streaming. But yeah, it's the closest thing we'll ever get to a Steve McQueen art film, if you yes, are
1: very art. much so. And and as far as I've been able to ascertain, not entirely sure why he made it, except maybe he was looking for an Oscar.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it was sort of like his his you know. His his actor training coming out, who wanted to do a big prestige project, you know could get his acting muscles stretched? i mean mm-hmm. it's it's one of those. you can feel it's it's like Bill Murray doing Razor's Edge, It's one of those
1: very much so. I think every actor gets to a moment in their career where they say, "I've got to be out of my comfort zone, yeah, but anyway, that was the first of three pictures. then, uh, as I mentioned before, he did Tom Horn, which was the last of his first artist commitments. Mm-hmm. A movie that is underseen, underappreciated. I think it's a really, really good picture, which has a kind of a interesting production history that um, uh, was originally going to be directed by James William, I think Garcia is how it's pronounced, who did um, Electric Glide in Blue, which is a movie that is available today. It's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. But at the time it was released, Garcia was being promoted as the next great American director. Well, it didn't quite turn out that way, but Garcio had found his way onto this project, and uh, not to this project, onto Tom Horn, and he started it. And then, ultimately, uh, it wasn't working out for whatever creative differences reason. And... Um,
0: By the way, we're in The Odd Couple now for a few
1: minutes. Oh, so. yeah, very much so. Again, going to the sort of the bizarre... Um, uh, contrast of tones. By the way, one of the guys at the poker table, um, you might recognize him as uh, the lawyer who wasn't there in uh, All the President's Men. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, just finishing up on Tom Horn, that McQueen and John A. Alonzo, who's the cinematographer, they have more or less directed the picture. I remember when it came out, the directing credit was William Ward And William Ward was a regular director on the Rockford Files, but a TV guy. Mm -hmm. And I'm going, William Ward? They chose William Ward to do this? This this felt odd to me. Well, he was brought in as kind of the director in name. And my understanding is that he did contribute to the picture, but ultimately was McQueen and Alonzo. And this was so much of a problem for the Directors Guild that... I think they changed the rules that an actor or somebody who was previously associated with the picture fires the director. They can't, they're, they're not allowed to direct the movie. Um, so McQueen being the re- rebellious guy and rogue guy he is, was uh, helping the DGA to sort of improve things for their membership. Right. Um, but it's an interesting movie to see. But one of the movies that McQueen was attached to, that he never did was he was originally going to star in William Friedkin's The Sor- uh, Sorcerer, not The Sorcerer, Sorcerer. Mm-hmm. And Friedkin uh, had done quite a bit of pre-production and found locations, and McQueen was on board. He wanted to do it, but McQueen want, was married to Allie McGraw at the time and wanted to see if he could get Ally a job on the picture, either as an associate producer or perhaps a you know, give her a small acting part so she could be on location with Steve and get paid for it. Mm-hmm. And Friedkin, who was fresh off his one-two punch of French Connection and The Exorcist, you know, thought it was a shitty idea. It's like, what, there's no women in this movie. Why would she have a job on this movie? And McQueen, as I understand it, respectfully just said, like, I've got to walk away from the movie. And Friedkin admitted in his autobiography that I had all these phenomenal, unseen locations that man had never been to, and they mattered nothing in comparison to Steve McQueen's blue eyes. <laughs> now, just I gotta say Roy Scheider did a great job in the part, and I like the movie a lot, but I think it could have been a real Steve McQueen classic.
0: Yeah. I have a feeling it also might not have been in quite the same way with McQueen attached, but lady, uh, yeah. you crave ice cream and yeah. without spoiling the movie you haven't seen it, but I don't think it would have been quite as grim.
1: It's true. It's true. Because you, could, you couldn't
0: pull it off of McQueen. People would have, yeah, it wouldn't have worked. But I still think it would have been a great part for it. Oh, for and, sure. I'd love know. to see it. I just think it would have been a little different. Charles uh, mentioned, of course, this is another, aside from LeVar Burton, this is another actor that McQueen brought on. Um, as you could tell, he pretty much directed this film. He, was, he uh, had a lot, yeah. it, his fingerprints are all right, over it's it. It's all over it. Uh, but this, of course, is Catherine Harold. They went way back together. They had both graduated from the neighborhood playhouse in New York. I mean, they had they, they'd been buddies for a long time. Um, so he wanted to bring her on to this film. Um, Very good actress, she's kind of one of those actresses who was just all over the place, especially in the 80s, um, and then just kind of like faded out uh, for whatever reason, but there were a lot of them around, she was sort of in the same vein as actresses like Marilyn Hassett and Kathleen Quinlan and all those, they were everywhere, just all excellent actresses, um, but only so many parts to go around, you know, so that's the way Hollywood works, I guess.
1: It's true, Uh, just because I'm Mr. Locations, uh, this is uh, Fuller and Hillside, which is north of Franklin and Hollywood Boulevard, and Hollywood, in fact, if you were to turn the camera around, and you would go up to the end of the street. Uh, there's a place called Runyon Park, which is supposedly a very famous place for uh, the famous and the wannabe famous who would go running and walk their dogs and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is that this part of Hollywood, which is kind of, is considered the Hollywood Hills, has not really changed very much. Um, All so the apartment
0: buildings still look just like that in the background. It's
1: true, it's true. And I think these buildings are still there. Um, that's David Spielberg, who I believe is uncredited, but he was a guy who worked a lot in the '70s and the '80s. He did a lot of guest starring. He's um, dressing. Yeah, what can you say to that? <laughs>
0: um, well, if you can't get Antonio Fargas,
1: if you can't, it's true. It's that's a total Antonio Fargas m- moment. But uh, you know, David Spielberg is one of these guys who often was buttoned down and often was uh, flustered. I'm convinced they, they use this building because of this elevator. Mm-hmm. There was a time in Los Angeles where the whole idea of an outdoor elevator or an eleva- a scenic elevator uh, was, was kind of a thing. Yeah. Now those you don't see anymore. You do not see these anymore. But uh, you know, somebody once said that L.A. didn't have any character as a city. Oh, that's and so not true. It's so not true, and this is an example of that. I think the cops overdid it just to bring this guy in.
0: <laughs> uh, <it's laughs>
1: See, there you go. At the end of that street, I think that takes you up to Runyon Park, which yeah. goes right into the hills above Hollywood.
0: Yeah, it does. There you go, all right. Now, if this thing doesn't ID, this is a real 70s movie at heart. I don't know what it does. But. It really, yeah. Also,
1: look at the uh, look at the graffiti back there, too, which I'm sure has been removed. But uh one of the things that's nice about this movie um and uh, the uh as they say in variety the lensing by fred Camp, is that there's not a lot of long lens stuff so you get to see uh you get to see all of the location and locations and and get a you know a real sense of time and place now i love that mcqueen is basically almost a non-participant in this and he's just reacting I know that. and but, I mean, there's David Spielberg working real hard McQueen's not. It's just, you know, there you go. This is downtown Los Angeles, and this area is around Broadway, which is one of the few parts of downtown L.A. that still kind of feels like this. Um, downtown Los Angeles, especially in and around Broadway, is a part of town where uh, a lot of television was produced. When Kojak wanted to get off the back lot at Universal, they would go to downtown in this general neighborhood. Cagney and Lacey, you would be driving up and down these streets uh, almost relentlessly, it seemed. Uh, and then, um, you know, shows like uh, Beretta, shot down there, Toma. It was a very handy kind of urban aged neighborhood, which worked very, very well for those shows, trying to be the East Coast. Now here's Eli Wallach, who co-starred with McQueen He's in the great, not in the greatest, in the Magnificent Seven. I always, you know, I, they're like enough brother enough and time. sister those <laughs> movies. And Wallach was an alumni of the Neighborhood Playhouse, as we said before. And you know, Wallach is considered one of the great character actors, or just great actors of of stage and screen. And and again, he thought Steve was a whale of a really good actor. It was. Um, you know, he had nothing but great things to say about McQueen. And it's interesting. He gets very high billing. He's only in three scenes. Mm-hmm. But again, I also feel that this is maybe the template character for Joe Pantoliano, uh, Joey pants yeah. in Midnight Run. Yep. That's Al Ruscio, who, if you watch television in the seventies and the eighties, you saw a, Al everything and everything. Um, he probably did, it. I'm sure I'm wrong. Yeah, I think he always, did the
0: little, he always did the little nervous head shake and everything, <laughs> too.
1: <laughs> but Al-, Al Ruscio was like a perennial on Aaron Spelling shows. Yeah. Uh, and probably Quinn Martin shows as well. Mr. Dawson
0: is a bound uh, We should probably just talk a little bit about who actually did direct this film, or at least who's credited, and that is uh, Buzz Kulick, who I know you've you actually done a, recently a commentary for one of his other films, which is Warning Shot, correct?
1: Yeah, uh, I did a commentary for Warning Shot. He also directed a, a favorite movie of mine, uh, Burt Reynolds' uh, movie, Sheamus. Um But you were going to talk about him, so continue. (laughs) Well, I'm saying, I assume you know more than I do, but. No, I don't. uh, I um, never know more than you do, Nathaniel.
0: Well, um, so if you're wondering, like, why the heck, he's he's mainly known for his TV work. I mean, if you look at his resume, it's like 90% television work. But if you're wondering, why the heck did Steve McQueen choose this guy to do his last movie? Well, the answer is because they went way back. Steve McQueen, of course, actually started off doing TV in the early days. And um, in fact, the first time they worked together was in 1958. It was a live TV episode of Climax, which was one of those half hour sort of thriller anthology shows. Um, there were they mainly exist as kinescopes now, but they were done actually live on TV um, mm. and, a lot of and usually in New York. Yeah. 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 Uh, and they're also fun to watch because of the live flubs that they always leave in. Um, that's another story. Uh, so, but yeah, but that's why. And, um, I, again, this is just speculation, but I assume it was because Buzz was someone that he not only knew, but who'd be kind of malleable to what Steve wanted on the film. Um, and by all reports from everyone who was, who worked on this film, that it was pretty much Steve calling the shots. Um, you know, that, I mean, there's no auteur theory at work here. I mean, this is, this is pretty much no, a steep project. No, no,
1: no. Uh, I, I, th- I think if you're gonna say, you know, the cinema of Buzz Kulik, this is not the, the greatest example. Yeah. But, you know, it's interesting that, that Kulik didn't really want to work on this picture initially. He had done some action movies. He'd done Via Rides, which I'm particularly fond of. But, you know, he was essentially a TV guy. And, you know, he was considered a very high-end TV movie director. But ultimately, um, Kulik responded to The Hunter because it was, he thought of it as a character piece, and it didn't have a lot of uh, gratuitous action. And at, at the end of the experience, he said he was very glad that he took the job. And um, But, you know, just going back to climax for a, a second, I found an interesting quote uh, from Kulik. He said, to be honest, he was, meaning McQueen, a real pain in the ass. He had great instincts, but he was undisciplined and unfocused. He was very insecure and totally unprofessional. Um, but ultimately he found that, Mc, you know, he thought of very highly of McQueen and um, you know, really had a lot of uh, respect for the actor he became. Cock spaniel can bring me the branch, brother. No,
0: no, no, dollars just a huge movie star. I mean, really, like, nobody was bigger than McQueen, you know, at the time this came out. I mean, the deal he got for this film was insane. It was like $3 million plus 15% of the gross, which was like, what, 5.5 million, I think, when all was said and done, um, which is pretty hefty for kind of a mid-level film like this. Yeah, and, and the, the,
1: the legend has it that McQueen would not even read a script unless you deposit a million dollars in his bank account. Now, when you hear the salaries of actors today, or salaries, especially salaries in the 90s and the early twos, it doesn't seem like a lot of money, but we forget this is 40 years ago. And a million dollars was a lot of money, and he got three million uh, and a a percentage of the gross. Not the net, the gross. So if the movie made a dollar, his percentage came from that that first dollar. Uh, Very few actors very few actors had that kind of clout back in those days
0: yeah I think the only other the only other actor i can think of like at this time who could have pulled that was probably burt reynolds i think burt clint eastwood also clint was close but not quite in that league because yeah. he, he was a little his he, he sort of had more of an experimental edge to him so people weren't he didn't command quite the same amount of money because he was a little more of a risk just a little bit
1: based on some of the things i've read about clint somewhat recently in fact that because Clint's production company was making the movies, that, that he was able to get more money as well. Um, a lot of stars, with sort of some exceptions, usually had the production company, and they were able to exert a certain level of control. And while this is not a Solar picture—Solar was McQueen's production company, in fact, it goes back as far as Bullet. Um, you know, he w- was interested in having a certain amount of control over his projects. Uh, in fact, I'm going to tell this interesting Steve McQueen Solar story just because it just shows you the kind of the power he had. Robert rellier who was his partner at Solar, the producing partner, uh, was having a conversation with McQueen, and McQueen said, I think I want to do that cop picture. And rellier said, are you sure? Because McQueen had sort of a reputation of changing his mind. Mm-hmm. And he said, yeah, I'm sure. He said, OK. And so Relier walks across the Warner Brothers lot where they had offices, and he goes into Jack Warner's office, who was still there in 67-ish, and said to his secretary, is he in? And she goes, yeah, he's in, go right in. And she goes, walking into Jack Warner's office, one of, the great of, one of the last of the great moguls, and he says, Steve wants to do the cop picture. Jack Warner says, I don't know, the kids today, they don't really cops. And Relier says, don't like cops. And said, Relier says, Steve will make it work. And Warner says, Okay. And he he says, uh, uh, can you have it for Christmas, is what Warner says. And Rellier says, yeah, I think so. And he says, okay, go do it. And that was the origin of Bullet. No must, no fuss, no committees, just the faith in a great movie star. And that turned out to be, I think McQueen's most iconic movie in many ways. He's great in The Magnificent Seven. He's great in The Great Escape and very iconic. But I think Bullet was, if you have to pick one, That's the one.
0: Yeah, if you think of a movie with Steve McQueen stars in where he is the lead, that's kind of the one your head goes to, I think.
1: Yeah, and and the thing is, the story, it could have been a TV movie. It could have been a vehicle for anybody. But he makes it a Steve McQueen movie. Um, Since Catherine Harold is on screen here, I found out a couple of other interesting things about her. Um, Catherine Harold, when she auditioned for this picture, had lighter hair. So maybe not. And McQueen, McQueen said to her, uh, "Could you darken my? Could you darken your hair?" And then, quote, "I can only be attracted to dark-haired women." Mm-hmm. Now, I think this might have been Catherine Harold's natural hair color because I always think of her as a brunette. But um, I thought that was an interesting thing.
0: Yeah, she's usually just a couple shades lighter. I wouldn't really call her a blonde, but it's usually a little lighter than this. Right.
1: Right. Um, I mean, she looks great. And um, by the way, uh, the guy that she's kissing is uh, another one of those guys, the kind of character actor that you see all the time, Richard Venture. And when I think of Richard Venture, I think of him as Al Pacino's older brother in Scent of a Woman, which is a really nice piece of acting. There's a lot of history. I mean, Venture has a nice scene coming up later on, but he was one of those guys who just, fit so many different types of parts, usually fairly buttoned down, tie wearing, uh, suit wearing kind of guys. And um, he has a very touching scene later on. Okay. Now, when you first saw this movie, did you buy the whole concept of this kind of open house that Papa Thorson has? <laughs> I mean, it, didn't, it, didn't it seem like maybe
0: a bit too much of a movie conceit? It, it, it feels like something out of a, like a TV pilot to me, a little bit. Um, apparently not that far from the truth. I mean, I mean, the real Thorsten was highly, uh, eccentric, I guess you could say, um, you know, and, and they did actually consult with the real one. Um, you know, Steve McQueen actually wanted to do a lot of research. He had actually read the script in 77. Um, I, apparently he was approached um, while he was sitting at the Beverly Hills Hotel. And, um, but, you know, he, uh, you know, went to go see the real guy and that's how they embellished all these things. Um, but, um, you know, he, he knew that they talked to guys like Gregory Peck and Lee Marvin. Um, so he went to North Hollywood to go talk with Orson, and I guess he talked to him about he, he'd worked as like a, a bridge champ and he was into astrology and nutritionism and all that. Um, much he, heavier. He was also a minister, yeah, too. He was a minister, he was a bishop, yeah, yeah. frankly. Um, but a much heavier guy. Like, physically, they looked nothing alike at all. Um, I think he said when he was actually like 300 pounds by the time he met McQueen, of course. This is way past his, his prime, of course. But he was a much sort of more.
1: A physical badass, yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah, I
0: mean, he was a guy who really could throw you to the ground and like call you off without even breaking right. a sweat.
1: Now, uh, do you remember the number of, of 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 guys that he brought in? I think it I think it wasn't around five thousand or something, something like, like
0: that. that? Yeah, it's some astronomical number.
1: All right, so you're watching this movie where he's basically bringing in a few guys, and you see what he has to go through, and then you think five thousand. Um, it's it's pretty amazing. Also, the other thing That's exhausting. Why, <laughs> yeah, it's it's exhausting to think about it, but also. Um, <laughs>
0: intensity like a real
1: sadly um thorson met met his end with a car bomb he died in a car bomb explosion so clearly he did not make a lot of friends doing what he did
0: 15 seconds to
1: um go.
0: which this movie touches on i mean they sort of like you know Hollywooded up a little bit with the whole like you know vengeful guy going after him that's kind of like as close to a through line as you get in this movie because it's it's more like a series of vignettes in, in a way um which is fine you know I, I think if the movie, I, I mean, listen, I, I recently rewatched this picture
1: for the first time in maybe decades mm-hmm. um, for this commentary, and there was a lot about this movie that I, I think I came to appreciate, but one of the things that I think is still sort of an issue for me, and was probably a big issue at the time for critics, was it's not an action movie, it's not a character picture, it's not a family movie yet, it's kind of all of those things. And the blend of it I think ultimately sort of works because McQueen makes it work. And I think he's charming in this Lamaze scene where he's very reluctant to... uh, He really doesn't want to be a dad, and I think he he doesn't want to go through the process. Mm -hmm. But again, those slight comic takes of his, um, I don't know, they sort of felt comfortable to me because it harkened back to the earlier movies that he did where he, you know, before he became really stamped primarily as an action guy. Now... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> once again Steve McQueen proving he's good with props yep. human props
0: <laughs> now this is unlike uh, W.C. Fields he apparently knows how to work with children yeah
1: yeah and and again there's certain scenes that you don't expect to see in a Steve McQueen movie now one of the things that's nice about this is Steve McQueen was born to drive Mustangs and Trans Ams and his sort of puzzlement and reluctance is really very amusing
0: well yeah this is kind of the thing if you if you've seen his other films it's much funnier watching that scene
1: (laughs) now i think he's definitely in the car and (laughs) he has to drive it badly yep now there's a certain degree of performance in this for him because he was at home with cars if just in case you don't know, Steve McQueen was addicted to speed. Mm-hmm. He loved racing cars. Like Burt Reynolds. Like Burt Reynolds. Uh, he also had a huge collection of motorcycles. I think he had the second biggest collection of motorcycles in Hollywood. The first was Bud Eakins, who uh, was a friend of McQueen's, uh, a motorcycle guy, and the guy who did the famous jump yeah. in The Great Escape. Howard, is that you? And um, so to see McQueen being incompetent at this is, I think the audience may have been amused, but I think one of the problems that this film had for the audience was it wasn't quite the Steve McQueen we wanted to see. Now, the one-sheet poster has him on top of a subway car holding a 45, and that image says to you, okay, here's the Steve McQueen movie you want to see. And in many ways, this movie is the Steve McQueen movie you wanted to see, and it's not.
0: Well, it's kind of like how we've, as some of you may know, we've done a lot of tracks for uh, Jean-Paul Belmondo movies, and those were very much kind of along the same lines, where it's like, Jean-Paul Belmondo, gun, blue jeans, there you go, that's <laughs> all you need on the poster. With Steve McQueen, it's kind of the same thing.
1: And, and in point of fact, Steve McQueen sort of is dressed like Jean-Paul Belmondo in this picture. Right. Um, one of the things that I, I was wondering, I said, why that jacket, why that that Air Force jacket? But it's got a great pocket in there where you can stash his 45. Mm-hmm. Tracy Walter, yeah, yeah, in in a less than benign kind of appearance.
0: Yeah, okay.
1: You know, when you think of Tracy Walter, you think of Tracy Walter uh, uh, in Silence of the Lambs as the uh, the guy in the funeral home, also the guy in the diner in Midnight Run, yep. where he's you know he understands what a bad day Robert De Niro is having. This is a little this is a little out of uh, his zone. Now at the time, he had. This sort of crazy-ass hairdo, mm-hmm. and he was going to get it cut. And McQueen said, "No, keep it. He liked it, and it worked for him." And um, you know, McQueen, McQueen was a guy who was very savvy about the details. Now, this guy—if he he must have been a Chicago actor, because I think this is probably shot in Kankakee, Illinois, or he could have been a local. He just feels
0: so genuine; it's a little hard to tell. I'll give you By the way, I love the, uh, the way they, they did the color timing on the scene, where, like the blue in his eyes really pops. I guess you had noticed already. Steve McQueen had
1: great <laughs> blue eyes. I think if you were a great movie star, you had great blue eyes. Him and, him and Paul Newman were having kind of a yeah. little uh, bake off, if you will, in the towering inferno at whose eyes were bluer.
0: <laughs> yeah. Especially once Jeffrey Hunter was out of the equation, because he had the bluest of them all. Uh,
1: that's very blue. It's very true. Um, You know, a couple other things about Buzz, again, nobody's that bad a driver. (laughs) You know, even a bad driver isn't that bad a driver. Uh, But going back to director Buzz Kulik, um, a couple of things that that are interesting. Uh, Kulik, of course, felt that McQueen was more than a superstar. He felt that McQueen was an exceptionally fine actor, as I said before. But going back to when they worked together on Climax uh... he said that when we first worked together he was a little shit <laughs> when i saw him again he was a man and it was interesting that they had bumped into one another on the four star i don't know if four star had a lot but maybe it was at, at cbs or uh... cbs had two studios back in the day mm-hmm. and it might have been cbs radford or it might have just been at one of the other movie ranches and Kulick sort of reunited with McQueen and McQueen told, told Kulik, he says, I'm going to be a big star. Mm-hmm. And Kulik was kind of amused by this. Mm-hmm. And he got home and he was talking to his wife and said, yeah, I is into Steve McQueen. He said he was going to be a big movie star. And they, they kind of had a chuckle over it. Mm-hmm. Well, McQueen proved them both wrong. And very quickly, as a matter of fact. Yeah. Um, because I think the movie that got McQueen on his movie star track was a, a movie he did with Frank Sinatra called Never So Few. Right where he was uh, cast as sort of this rebellious army corporal. And McQueen very quickly was showing his his capability with firearms, his naturalness. Um, I think in many ways when he was in the movie with Frank Sinatra, he was stealing the movie from Frank Sinatra, mm-hmm. who say what you want about Frank as an actor, Frank was a really terrific movie star. Yeah. And he was. A, I thought he was a good actor as well. And blue eyes. And, you know, old blue eyes. <laughs> So, I don't know if it was a requirement for stardom, but uh, it it certainly didn't hurt.
0: And um, well, you know, what was unique about McQueen also was that he didn't really sort of he was into very much sort of the acting training, all that kind of stuff. But he wasn't a very methody type actor, so he stood apart from guys like you know Montgomery Clift and Marlon Brando and all those guys. And you know, Paul Newman was kind of was very sort of methody at least for a while, and then he kind of sort of phased out of it. But um, he was a little different.
1: Yeah, you would think for a guy who was quote New York trained. Yeah. There, there's sort of a mindset that these guys are more dedicated than California actors they're more um, uh, they sweat the details more McQueen it's almost like he had to do that so he could throw it away um, it's very is very different thing now um, this is again fairly comic stuff with the dynamite although it's 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 McQueen is jumping all over the place, or his double Gary Combs is doing a lot of it, but I thought that the picture was fairly well cut by Robert L. Wolf, who's a guy who has a history of working with McQueen and Sam Peckinpah. Um, this picture, it, it, this picture is it's, it's not an auteur kind of movie, but it has a certain degree of what I've talked about in other tracks high craft, mm-hmm. meaning everybody is doing a good job. Right. Um, and that there's a well, certain- almost p- everyone, we'll get to that. Well, we will get <laughs> to that. All right, so that that's a tease, Nathaniel. Um, but Fred Konenkamp, who was, who shot Patton, who also worked with McQueen on The Towering Inferno with Erwin Allen. Uh, I think the first time I noticed Fred Konenkamp's credit as a director of photography was on The Man from UNCLE. And I have to say that, that Konekamp is one of those guys who I never think of as, as great in terms of lighting. There's nothing overly stylized about his work, but he is a very good cinematographer. And I think that the uh, transfer on this Blu-ray really kind of shows off. It, just this really nice piece of Hollywood craft. Um, also, this scene is is has echoes of a number of great scenes in Hollywood, uh, starting with... Um, Alfred Hitchcock's North by Northwest. Yep. Prime Um, cut. And I was going to go right to prime cut, Michael Ritchie's prime cut, where Lee Marvin and very, very young Sissy Spacek are being chased by, I think it's called a thresher. Yep, thresher, yeah. Um, Very, very effective scene. And so um, I don't know if they were aware, I think, well, everybody had seen North by Northwest, but I don't know that it was uh, influenced or it's it's a... tip of the hat, one of the things that's interesting is that McQueen is choosing to sort of open the door and look around for his car, and what's nice about it is you go, that's really Steve McQueen driving that, right.
0: proving he could drive anything. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so to keep you out of suspense, the uh, the one participant who I think is a little iffy on this one is uh, was also brought on by McQueen. Again, like we said, he pretty much stalked this um, in front of it, behind the camera with, with his peeps. Uh, one of them is the composer, Michel Legrand. And I, I do say this as someone who adores Michel Legrand. He's written some of my absolute favorite scores of all time. I think he's absolutely brilliant. But when he was mismatched with the material, the results could be a problem. Um, I don't think it, it's necessarily super detrimental to this film, but he has an odd choice. It almost feels like this music was written for a different film and it's sort of thrown in sort of rather randomly, I think.
1: Yeah, and, and if you pay attention to the music, hopefully you'll watch this movie without our track you'll see that there's very little music spotted in the picture. And I suspect that's because uh, there was some dissatisfaction. One of the comments about, uh, about this score is it was quote, Baroque. Mm-hmm. And I think what Legrand was trying to do was try to reflect the fact that Papa liked classical music. But for an action picture, it's just, while it's an interesting choice, offbeat choice, I don't know that it was the right choice. And somewhat interestingly, and I think this backs things up, uh, the score was as is in America. But the European versions of this movie had some extra score that was composed by Charles Bernstein. Now, I've never heard that, and I don't know what it does for the film, but I'm sure they felt that maybe for European audiences it might add an action element uh to make the movie perhaps a, a tad more exciting the fact that those two guys those two lunkheads survive that explosion <laughs> uh sort of goes to this sort of, again tone shift issue that the movie has um the yeah, fact that <laughs> they're only busted up
0: the fact they're not covered in third degree burns at least yeah, yeah. right <laughs> Uh, But yeah, but so as you were saying, yeah, the score, there isn't a ton of score, in fact, there was actually no official score release for this film when it first came out. There was no soundtrack LP. Um, The reason Legrand was brought on mainly was because he had actually done the score for uh, the film Le Mans, which was a real big passion project for Steve McQueen. Um, Summit's Thunder got taken away by the, the rival film Grand Prix, but um, but, you know, he'd done a score for Le Mans, which I think is fine, because it is sort of very exotic kind of French score. Um, of course, he'd also scored the, um, the film The Thomas Crown Affair, which was one of Steve McQueen's biggest hits, but that wasn't really a personal project for McQueen. That was just a big movie star role for him. But, um, yeah, it's, it's just a very peculiar score. In fact, there was actually no release for it, as far as I'm aware, until um, it got issued on French CD. As it was paired up with the score for Le Mans as kind of a special edition, but that was much, much, much further down the road.
1: Yeah, and I would say for uh, Michelle Legrand, completists only. Yeah. It, now this neighborhood, I can't quite tell where it is. I know it's away from downtown, but because uh, you have these, uh, the, got, what do they call those bouncing cars? I mean, I, I think that, <laughs> I think there's
0: a name for it. It's a very L.A. kind of thing, but. Um, this actually looks like the neighborhood where they shoot the Fast and the Furious films. When they, whenever they go back home with Vin Diesel and bring brings the family home, it looks just yeah, like this, that. Yeah, this
1: this could probably be East Los Angeles, which is a, primarily a Hispanic neighborhood. Obviously, the dog likes Catherine Harold, not Steve. But it's just sort of interesting, and and I think that this is a movie sort of TV sort of conceit that you have these uh, gringos. Um, living in perhaps uh, a Hispanic neighborhood, but they know him and they like him. Um, by the way, it's, this is a good shot to say that probably the majority of all of those toys
0: that you see are Steve McQueen's toys. Yeah, Yeah. again, the whole, like, the toy train collecting was also something that he embellished, again, that he wanted to add to the character. Uh,
1: somewhat prior to making this, uh, McQueen moved to, to a neighborhood in California called Santa Paula. And McQueen was, I believe, a pilot. I don't know how accomplished he was. But he got um, a a hangar in Santa Paula, which served as kind of the home for his motorcycles Mm -hmm. and his toy collection. And this is something that McQueen wanted to bring to the character, this kind of love of the old and the way things were. And if this movie has any thematic... Uh, kind of legs yeah. to stand on it's like here is a guy who was afraid of change mm-hmm. he did not embrace it he did not welcome it and then you know you have Catherine harold who's basically let's face it when you have a kid that's about as much change as you could possibly have right. and again mcqueen totally silent yeah. in this scene letting his blue eyes his intensity and and his great gift for thinking on camera I think Catherine Harold was a little surprised when she saw the movie and saw she didn't think he was really working it. Mm -hmm. And then she sees it on the screen and goes, oh, my God, Mm -hmm. he knows what he's doing. It's 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 a gift that I think very few star even very few movie stars had. Uh, A couple of more uh, interesting things I found out about Catherine Harold is that when she was very nervous when they did their love scene earlier when she's Mm -hmm. lying in bed and said that she was horny because um, she barely knew Steve McQueen and well, before they were going to start making out as she put it, he liked chewing tobacco, I think he had been a smoker and he gave up smoking and he, and he substituted his caffeine addiction with chewing tobacco <laughs> I guess this, the legend has it before he got into bed he, and they did the take he just spit it out <laughs> and she admitted that while well, she was concerned about what he was going to taste like because of it, she said he tasted kind of sweet and you know it wasn't really a problem and uh it uh the story goes that uh mcqueen chewed tobacco throughout the shoot which as we know today uh tobacco chewing tobacco is in many ways somewhat worse than even cigarettes yeah it's
0: extremely carcinogenic so. uh
1: another interesting story about katherine harold i want to get this in before i forget it uh she drove up to the set one day in her honda now granted she had her career is just getting started and she didn't have the uh, pretentious uh, sports car or, you know, higher end wheels. And, um, so she drives up with her Honda and Chad McQueen happened to be on the set. And, um, Chad McQueen told Catherine Harold, said that my dad says you need a new set of tires and Harold agreed. And at the end of the shooting day, she came back to her Honda and discovered it had new tires and she admitted that she didn't know how to thank her co-star for his kindness. But that's just one of many examples uh, of of McQueen's kindness as a star and as a person Mm -hmm. um, on this movie, which people remark about it because he wasn't always that way. Right. In point of fact, when he did uh, The Magnificent Seven, he complained that his trailer wasn't as close to the set as Yul (laughs) Brynner's. And if you watch that movie, in many many scenes, especially the scene with the hearse, he's competing with Brenner.
0: Yeah, it's it's a contest. Oh yeah, yeah. That's like <laughs> that whole rivalry is is very famous from that film and kind of hysterical.
1: You know, I mean, but but organic and brilliant. There's yeah. you know, McQueen takes his hat off. He's sort of using it to sort of see how his how his vision would be in the sunlight. Mm-hmm. The the one that cracked me up is where he takes the shotgun shells and he just shakes it to hear the buckshot in there. Mm-hmm. But that was McQueen. He could take all these little things and make them completely work. Yep. This is a wonderful scene. I think it's, it's more serious in tone. It's very sad. Uh, filmed in the Hollywood Hills.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Those houses, if they still exist, are worth a gazillion dollars today. Yeah. Um, but this is a very serious scene, and, and McQueen may have had dialogue. One of the things that he did a lot was he would cross out dialogue. He would say less. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, because he's that guy, he's that movie star, it would be more. And um, again, this feels almost like it's from a different picture. Yeah.
0: You know? Going back to what you were saying about Steve McQueen's sort of benevolence, um, a lot of people who worked on this film noted that he was uh, essentially like a much more giving guy than he used to be. Maybe it's because he was sort of sensing his own mortality kind of sticking up upon him but um but he was really very generous apparently around the time he made this film um his, his family's talked about that too but um for example he gave a lot of donations to the church that was right next to where they were shooting um in illinois and uh you know that um but apparently he was like really effective uh, when they were shooting near the ghetto area um, but he gave uh, hundreds of dollars of sporting goods to the kids to play with um there was also a 15-year-old tomboy um they found living nearby named karen wilson um who ended up taking under his wing and he actually became her permanent guardian, um, and he sent her off to like, Ohio, California, had to go to this private school to get away from the squalor that she had at home. Uh, but Steve and his wife Barbara ensured that she would graduate high school, and now she's working at an escrow company here in LA. So he got her on the right path. So, um, but apparently, it was really common for him to do things like that. He would just sort of do these little kind gestures um, that um, didn't really—he didn't go to the press about it. It wasn't to make himself look better. It just—it was something that he felt he had to do, and just didn't make a big deal about it. He did not want attention for his kindness
1: and and by the way just because I remember the number he loved kids mm-hmm. and he saw these kids in these these you know uh, ghetto neighborhoods who had very little and McQueen did not grow up had a McQueen did not have a happy childhood he mm-hmm. did not grow up with very much and one of the things that he did t- uh, to augment your point about the, the sporting equipment He said to, I think, one of the stunt guys, I want you to get 100 bats, 100 balls, 100 gloves, and 100 footballs. And they were, as I understand it, were just left in a park in that neighborhood for the kids to find and to take and to enjoy. And McQueen loved kids, um, I guess because like many, sometimes many great stars, they didn't have much of a childhood. And so he used his... uh, his wealth in a very, very positive way. And in point of fact, he became a much more empathetic and sensitive uh, guy, movie star. When they went to Chicago, he was given a suite at the Drake Hotel, which is one of Chicago's finest hotels, which had all the amenities. And then Mort Engelberg, the producer, I almost got the set. said, all right, I'm going to go. I'm going to go back to my place. And McQueen said, you're not staying here? And he said, no, I'm staying at uh, nice. a well-known chain uh, of hotels with the rest of the crew. And McQueen said, I'm, uh, let, I'm checking out. Mm-hmm. I want to be with the crew, which I think the earlier McQueen would not have done that. Yeah. That my understanding that the earlier McQueen almost would never take his wallet out to pay for anything. Right. And so he kind of had this, I guess when he, he had a sense of his mortality, I think that this began uh, when he was doing Tom Horn. Mm-hmm. And I think he was maybe trying to make up for his somewhat bad boy past yeah. with this movie. And in point of fact, the sto- as the story goes, this is probably the smoothest shoot in Steve McQueen's career uh, in terms of no conflict, uh, just in terms of everything going fairly well in terms of his attitude. Um, he's really good in this scene. You don't usually see these types of scenes in his pictures. And I think it's kind of moments like this that make this movie, I think, really worth watching and watching again. Yeah. Again, that fire chief, um, uh, I don't even know what you call those things. I mean, it's a pump, <laughs> I guess, a yeah. gas pump. That was something that was from his uh, his collection of stuff. That cash register, apparently he collected ancient cash registers, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, which is kind of interesting and fascinating. Uh, I know that other stars have equally sort of offbeat collecting things like Tom Hanks collects typewriters. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, not this guy, but this guy I think is Ralph Thorson. <laughs> You know, he got a cameo in this picture. Mm-hmm. He was also the technical advisor, and I think he wrote a book that the screenplay was yeah. based on.
0: Yeah, I think it was Christopher Keane had, had, had worked with him on writing the book about his life, but yeah. So yeah, as you can see, big guy.
1: He looks a little bit more like a guy called Ralph Thorson yeah. or Papa.
0: Yeah, looks more like a Papa.
1: He looks more like a Papa. You know, well, he's got a big sort of, you know, cuddly grizzly bear sort of quality.
0: Once I remember, like, as a, as a kid, when this movie first came out, I remember, like, the first time they put the posters up at the theater, and I was like, Steve McQueen is Papa. Right. <laughs> <laughs> now, in the L.A. of today,
1: this is only supposition, but I think Steve McQueen, this, his character would have woken up, like, on the grass mm-hmm. because some guys would probably would have come up and stolen the car. Right. Um, and this car was... Uh, um, I think purchased by one of the guys on Pawn Stars. I think I read, mm-hmm. and ultimately was uh, I think auctioned off later on for quite a bit of money.
0: Well, I think pretty much any car that Stephen Queen sat in in front of a camera. Was, it's yeah.
1: true. It's true. I think the Mustang from Bullet went for some. That was like a record amount. Yeah. A
0: phenomenal amount of money. It was ridiculous.
1: Now, interestingly enough, I mean, you look at McQueen, and he always prided himself on being in great shape. Uh, again, I think being in the, in, uh, I think it was the Marines, helped him get in a great shape. Um, and he was a little nervous. You're fixing it. Uh, you know, he had put on some weight for Enemy of the People, and I guess when he was doing Tom Horn, they, they somebody might have said something about him putting on his weight. But listen, this guy more or less looks the same at 50, as he did when he was, you know, 20-some-odd years younger. In mm-hmm. uh, and, and point of fact, if you were to go on the Internet and you uh, Googled Steve McQueen shirtless pictures, you could find tons because oftentimes when he was on location, now, granted, it might have been a place that was quite warm, he often would walk around without his shirt on. He was, you know, very secure about how he looked. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting that he was a little insecure um, uh, in the latter part of his life. But you know, you watch the movie and you go, about what?
0: <laughs> yeah, there was like a very extensive like photo, like a, like hundreds and hundreds of photos of him that were taken that weren't published during his lifetime. But It came out of what, maybe 10 years ago? Eight yeah. or 10 years ago, I think. Um, but yeah, as, as you can see, he was definitely very casual and unabashed in front of a camera. So. I actually also noticed
1: one of the things that he was willing to act turned away from the camera. Mm-hmm. That that it wasn't about him and his face. Um, I think a lot of stars always want to make sure that they're getting their close-up, that the camera's on them. And McQueen, I think, was just at a point in his life where he was able to just play it as he naturally thought it. Again, this scene after something somewhat more realistic and heartfelt, mm-hmm. especially after the death of, you know, his friend, the cop played by Richard Venture. This is almost a slapsticky type scene. Not, not tremendously, but I think it, again, the tone in this movie is really somewhat inconsistent. It has a little bit of a patchwork kind of quality, but,
0: I guess maybe it's the the Buzz Kulik aspect, but it does feel to me, it it almost feels like sort of like a supersized double pilot episode or something at times.
1: Yeah, in in point of fact, I think, you know, Kona Camp had done a lot of television work. Now, had this been shot by Michael Mm Winner, perhaps, or Peter Himes would have been his own DP. Yeah. And Peter Himes, I guarantee you, would shoot this thing with a ton of fog filter. Yeah. Because he loved fog filter at that point in his career
0: and a lot more would have taken place at night
1: <laughs> it's true it's true but i mean this set which is i think nicely lit very solidly lit has almost what would be considered a tv look and in point of fact i think a number of the critics thought of this almost as a tv movie i think it's it's bigger than a TV movie, but maybe, like you said, a supersized budget. It is, but I mean, it just, it just
0: feels there are just certain elements that ha- it feels just a tiny TV movie-ish. Especially the end credits. I mean, we'll get to that when we hit them, but the end credits right. are, ex- are purely TV. Uh, since you mentioned Peter Himes, though, I mean, should we talk about probably the more infamous incident associated with this film? Why not? Okay, so um, this is directly from Steve McQueen himself, so this is not <laughs> hearsay.
1: It's not supposition <laughs> yeah, we're, on our part.
0: Yeah, so no legal issues with this. This is this is Steve McQueen's account of of what happened. So. Um, so again, Himes was attached to the film before McQueen came on. Uh, but McQueen did not get along with him, to put it mildly. Wound up getting him kicked off. Um, McQueen wanted to flat out direct this film himself, but the DGA said no. That was actually because of Outlaw Josie Wales. There was actually a law, and, a rule in place. Also because of Tom Horn too. And Tom oh. Horn, yeah. That um, if you're an actor who came in after, and you got, and the director was saying you could not take over because it would, it was to avoid these sort of power play moves like that. Um, so, but, um, but, but this is a direct quote. McQueen called Hyams uh, an insufferable boar with a gigantic ego when they met, and he actually went up firing a gun at the chair where Hyams had been sitting. Um, he said, I aimed at the chair and pulled the trigger. I informed Hyams that I would have shot him if I could have gotten away with it, but just in case, I just killed the terrible aura he carried around and to get the hell out of my sight. Wow. So, uh, yeah. I <laughs> think he'll say it's a good thing Hayams did not stick around for the film.
1: Yeah, although, you know, historically, McQueen often had problems with his directors in yeah. uh, and, and point of fact, this, as the story goes, when he did Hell is for Heroes, which is a, a really excellent right. World War II movie in general, but I think one of McQueen's best performances, uh, he and Don Siegel were locking horns on that left and right, but the end result was, yeah. I think, a mini-classic. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's quite a classic in the grander sense of war films, but it is a mini-classic, and McQueen... I'm not going to say he's never been better, but I don't know if he's ever been more interesting. Right. Playing an absolute psychopath, unsympathetic. Yeah. Um, You know, but one of the things that I liked about that picture is, and maybe McQueen was in touch with this, the whole idea of um, you need crazy people to fight in wars. Mm -hmm. Because. That character would never be successful anywhere else. There's the Drake Hotel in the background. Yeah, there you go. They're on uh, Michigan Avenue, I think, or close to Michigan Avenue. This part of Chicago is known as the Gold Coast, mm-hmm. uh, the most affluent part of the city. And it's. This is not the Gold Coast. <laughs> this is a little bit of a neighborhood jump, but the. Uh, the Gold Coast is really where uh, the most expensive real estate is, some of the most expensive shopping. It's a remarkable place. Um, I'm personally a big fan of Chicago, just to remind people that Steve can't drive even with a <laughs> modern car. Um, but this neighborhood is, is not, this is, this is not the best Chicago has to offer. And I believe Code of Silence was shot somewhere in this neighborhood, mm-hmm. because Code of Silence also features the elevated train. It was it's literally called the L in Chicago, mm-hmm. and it's it's a popular location because you can shoot in and around the train and also under the tracks. Yeah, there was a great chase scene in an episode of a short-lived series called The Chicago Code, which was filmed in this general vicinity, and. Um, Uh, Chicago is a film city. Historically, was very hard to shoot in because uh, Chicago used to be run by a political machine. You know, it is the home of machine politics. Mm -hmm. And Hollywood had a very, very hard time getting permits and okays to shoot in Chicago. And this movie, I think, kind of in some small way opened up the door. Mm -hmm. And they really make... um, a lot of use of Chicago. And I think part of the desire, that thing where McQueen is holding his ears, that is just one of those things that he does well. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's a, a choice that you don't see from other actors. Yeah. Now, again, look at how comfortable he is with the 45. I like the fact that he doesn't want to shoot at this guy but look at, look at how determined and serious McQueen is. It's the Steve McQueen from another movie. I think it's the Steve McQueen that people wanted to see in this movie and were a little let down. But, you know, this is why the guy's a movie star. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's great about Chicago with a lot of these tenement buildings is they have these, these uh, staircases behind their du- dual entrance- entrances to these buildings. by the way, that actor um, is uh, Tom Rosales, who's basically a stuntman and clearly hired because he could do everything that was needed for this. Now, um, most of this, most of the stuff that we can, when we can see McQueen's face, and even in some long shots, we know it's Steve McQueen. Now, in the past, he probably would have done all of this, all of this uh, running and jumping. I love the fact he's just that ain't Steve McQueen that ain't Steve McQueen, but I love the fact that he was going, okay, I guess I have to do this. Right. Um, also Kulik and McQueen and Company understood it's really good to shoot on rooftops in a city mm-hmm. because you get so much production value. and this is a part of town which I, I suspect has probably either been um, you know gutted and renovated or just completely destroyed. Right. Because clearly, it, you, you can tell it's falling apart.
0: Yeah, yeah I think you're right. This was one, one of the first big Chicago films. 1980 was kind of a big Chicago year. Because you also had the Blues Brothers, um, which yeah. has just an insane amount of Chicago coverage in that, too. Um, but yeah, throughout the 80s, that was really like a big Chicago decade. Um, running Scared, we mentioned, which has kind of a, some of the similar locations. Also, another great one is uh, the film Child's Play. Mm -hmm. Um, which is shot all over the place in Chicago. But again, it gets in some of the lower-class areas like this, too, but has kind of a similar vibe to what we're watching here. Well, Code of
1: Silence, directed by Andrew Davis. In fact, Andrew Davis, I think, is a son of Chicago. Yeah. And what happens is uh, he knew the real estate. Now, clearly, they're having this chase underneath the L because it just looks so damn cool. Mm -hmm. And a little bit of the sting was shot in Chicago as well. The sting is an interesting and very canny... Um, <clears throat> mixing of real Chicago and California and matte paintings. Mm-hmm. But the L, nothing says Chicago in many ways uh, better than the L. Clearly, Rosales is doing all his own stunts. He's nuts, by the way. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Now, McQueen was having a real hard time at this point. The fact that he did this really impressed me. Yeah. Because there were some moments where Kulik had said that He'd, he'd come running around a corner, and after he would come running around the corner, he'd be leaning on something, trying to catch his breath. Because yeah. he was starting to feel the effects of his uh, of his uh, lung cancer. Yeah.
0: Also, apparently, it was like very cold when they were shooting this. Like They couldn't quite see their breath during the day, but it was like very, very cold. And I guess it seemed like he was having a pretty hard time with it, with breathing it in all the time.
1: Really? It doesn't look that cold to me. Yeah. I mean, it looks like it was probably shot in, in spring, yeah. and, and in point of fact... Um, they shot five weeks in Chicago, one week in Kankakee, Illinois, which was doubling as the rest of America, and four weeks in Los Angeles. And I think part of why they shot in Chicago was they wanted to do this incredibly long chase. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know if this is one of the longest chases because it's a foot chase, it's the, it's, you got the trains, and then we go to uh, um, automobiles. But if you were to time this, this is really a long chase.
0: It's a long one, yeah. And it took a
1: long time to do.
0: Although this is, this is going into a deep cut, but I think the movie Short Time might have actually had this one beat, though. Have you ever seen that with Debbie Coleman? Oh yeah, yeah. I think that that's an even longer one. But yeah, this one's definitely up there.
1: I don't think this is a record holder, but the but the design, you yeah. know, what what they wanted when they started doing this was uh, to have something really really extended. Yeah. And you know, ultimately, I think. Uh, it has, I think, greater value to me as an audience because it's all real. Mm-hmm. This sort of thing might have been done uh, with a lot of CG, and even though McQueen is not doing really hard stuff, he's still on that train and he still gets on the roof of that train.
0: Well, again, this was a day when actors would try to do a lot of their own stunts if they could, which is a bit of a lost art. I think Tom Cruise is, of course, keeping it alive still. And still gets great press for it so i don't know why it's so rare for actors to do their own stunts now but you know it's it's great value when you actually see your your movie star really doing all this stuff on film it's a thrill that you know you can't really recreate with cgi i think what happens
1: for an audience is that when you see stuff like this for real where even though i'm sure they were taking very good care of mcqueen in terms of safety lines and stuff like that if it's done for real, it's dangerous, and dangerous translates to suspense and excitement for an audience. Now, I suspect that's Gary Combs, who, frankly, does a really pretty good job doubling McQueen. I gotta say, mm-hmm. um, but that's real. Steve, that's yeah. Steve McQueen up there. In fact, that was almost like the image from the poster. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 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 an incredible thing to see stuff for real because it's kind of why we used to go to the movies.
0: Yeah. Well, this was—I mean, to give any—this was like what about a year or so after the Great Train Robbery, which had Sean Connery really getting on that train, almost getting his head knocked off. That is one of the most terrifying movie star stunts ever put on film.
1: Yeah, I mean that's—I think the last time I watched that movie, I was remarking to to somebody I was watching with, I said, "We kind of forget he's really up there," <laughs> and a lot of those those close calls were really close. Yeah. Um, I don't know that McQueen was in quite the same level of danger. But to the movie's, to the movie's credit, um, the realness makes this, I think, more enjoyable, more exciting. Now, that's a great bit. Mm-hmm. That, uh, yeah, you can tell it's Gary Combs yeah. in, that, in that shot. But, and I'm sure McQueen was pretty safe. But this is, again, very nicely edited by Robert Wolf, who mm-hmm. had worked for Sam Peckinpah and worked uh, also for John Milius mm-hmm. on The Wind and the Lion. In fact, Robert Wolf worked on one of my favorite old TV shows, Combat. I think you know a thing or two about it. I know a little (laughs) bit about that. And um, again, it goes to that thing that this movie has a really strong level of craft. And this is a very extended sequence. Now, Mm -hmm. Peter Himes probably said, well, I'm going to try and do something even better with the L Mm -hmm. when he did Running Scared. Um, and
0: I wouldn't be surprised if
1: Peter Himes came up with the idea for this. Yeah. Because he, he is scene, one of the credited screenwriters.
0: Yeah, this scene really just feels like something Peter Himes would have done it again. Running scared, I think, just feels like his variation on, like, well, I'm going to one-up it. Yeah. Uh, and it is, it is one hell of a scene, though. Uh, if you haven't seen the movie, I say, check it out. It's worth it just for that alone.
1: Yeah, it, it's... It, it's a different experience, I guess, for me watching this movie today than I did then. I, I, I freely admit... I was a little disappointed because it wasn't quite the movie that I expected. Mm-hmm. It wasn't quite the movie the poster was talking about yeah but um, ultimately, I think it has a certain amount of charm, which is all it's all McQueen and again, this stuff would be done today, CG. I love the fact that he's grabbing his heart. I mm-hmm. just I love the fact that he's just not the, the hero who's up for this kind of stuff yeah. And those are all actors' choices. Those are things that are not on the page. And (laughs) I also sort of like the fact that he seems a tad confused. Mm -hmm. And then we have this.
0: I also curious, we haven't, we've had, like I said, we've had a lot of bounty hunter films since then. We haven't had very many based on the lives of real bounty hunters. You'd think that would be a profession where, we have a lot of material. We've obviously the other big one would be Tony Scott's Domino, which is based on Domino Harvey. The right, um, which is I mean, it's an insane story by itself. The fact that they, I mean, not making a movie out of her life would have been a crime. Um, well, the fact that she's the daughter of one of the best Lord, known yeah. actors of the time, and then yeah. she decides to become a bounty hunter. Yeah, I mean, it's insane. Uh, yeah, you know, it's like, and the movie's crazy. I mean, it's it's stylistically like the complete opposite. This film is like super sedate compared to Domino.
1: This is a classically filmed Hollywood picture. Yeah. Domino is a movie that looked like it was made made by crack. a whole bunch of people on drugs. Yeah. <laughs> Peyote or cocaine or whatever, or all of the above. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting movie. I'm not entirely sure it completely works, but one of the things that I think, it was a less romanticized version of A Bounty Hunter. Yeah. Um, to some degree, Midnight Run is a little less romanticized than this, mm-hmm. but Midnight Run is an, I, is an action comedy. Mm-hmm. And so tonally it's different. I think the issue that I had, again, I have with this movie tonally is it's it's trying to be a number of different things.
0: But then again, I mean, if you look at the, some of the real life, like I'm sure someday we'll get a film based on Dog the Bounty Hunter. But if you watch that show, I mean, being a bounty hunter is weird. I mean, just tonally, it's the people you hang out with in, on a regular basis. It's just very strange. So, I mean, maybe this isn't that far off what the experience is like, at least based on what, what I've what I've seen, you know, through pop culture. I don't know.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that when you see Dog the Bounty Hunter and you think about maybe the Domino uh, Harvey story, uh, it's a weird world with people who are not, they're pretty unsavory. And I think, again, you have to try and find a way, if you're making a movie in 1980 with a movie star, how to kind of make it seem not as unpleasant. Um... Well, this, this scene here, I don't know where this exactly is. I mean, it might be underneath Michigan Avenue. These are the marina towers in Chicago. Uh, that bridge goes across the Chicago River. And again, this is uh, part of the Gold Coast which is the more affluent and and really interestingly architectural part of Chicago. Love the fact that McQueen is kind of limping and I suspect he might really be limping. Um, Every once in a while when you see a hero sort of um, mimic real life, there's a, a great couple of moments in Hickey and Boggs where Robert Culp is running during a gunfight at the Coliseum and he's limping and it turned out, Uh, I had seen a a screening of that movie where Culp was at, and I asked him, I said, so was that a choice on your part? And he said, no, I had a knee operation two weeks earlier, and I still couldn't quite run. I said, works for the character. And he goes, oh, good.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, any kind of, like, physical fallibility, like in an action scene especially, it always kind of adds something to it. It feels like you're a little more invested in it because you can feel it, you know. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: I, again, McQueen, I think, is cutting a little of the tension with his comic reactions mm-hmm. to what's going on. I think I think he's very entertaining in it, but this is really couched on a more real level, and McQueen is almost slapstick here, yeah. which I think was is is unnecessary.
0: But, well, you know, this was a James Bond era, and we had Roger Moore films, so you had to do that. I,
1: you know, really, you, oh, okay.
0: No, I'm not saying that was the right call. I'm just saying that that's what movies did back then. It's like, yeah. this, this was the same year. I mean, this was after Moonrager, the same year as Cannonball Run. It's just, it's what you did. So,
1: Yeah, when you're doing, co- I, I think the thing is that if you treat the scene comically, then all of the damage that is being done, all the collateral damage. And I, I th- again, McQueen is great in that. And he just, he goes, eh, eh, eh. he doesn't apologize. He doesn't do anything. Now, of course, when you watch this scene, If you're like me, at least, I'm going, no one ever gets away when they go up. Mm -hmm. Whether it's in a construction site or whether it's in a garage or it's in a skyscraper, you can't escape.
0: Now, since we're watching the scene here that's been going on, I I remember this film used to play on HBO all the time. In fact, that's how I first saw it, because again, I I was like a wee tyke when it came. Even though it was PG, this wasn't the kind of thing my parents would drag me to. Um, Great little gag here, by the way. This, it took,
1: I think, six or seven different
0: agencies to okay this. Yeah. yeah and,
1: and you can sort of see there's an audience for it. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if you know Chicago, there are a lot of people that walk those streets. Yeah. So it doesn't quite stick out. But if you're looking for it, you can tell that there's a bit of an audience. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: I I'm sort sure. of half expected, I, I didn't remember it, but I half expected Tom Rosales to come to, the, to Bob to the surface. Yeah um not so much
0: yeah you got me
1: interesting moment that was maybe one of the very few shots where they used the zoom lens yeah which i i always find zooms a bit out of character to the rest of of motion picture storytelling but that's just me
0: well it depends on the way it's used in the movie i think um again it's pretty sparing here i mean sometimes it can be great i think it's put to really excellent use in something like sharky's machine for example yeah it's a tool but um but so what i was saying was you know like uh, when when this first came out i remember just being sort of like thinking wow people are really bagging on this movie i wonder what's wrong with it but when it hit Very hbo so. but it, had, it was on hbo constantly for a couple of years at least because they could show in the afternoon it was a mcqueen movie you know and it was rated pg so it was fine um but like the people that i knew watched it thought it was fine it seemed like it seems like its reputation has you know increased ever since then like it's gotten more goodwill so I think whatever that hostility was for whatever reason seems to have subsided, um, You know, which is a good thing. Cause I don't know why people... Were, you know, I think the reaction was just super negative at the time, which it seemed a little out of proportion to me. But again, maybe the expectation had something to do with it.
1: I think this movie plays better when you've seen it once yeah. and you just accept it for what it is, not, not what your expectations might be. I think I'm guilty of that, that um, I was expecting maybe a bit more of a badass McQueen movie, especially based on... The subject matter, the poster. Mm-hmm. Um I don't remember the tagline off the top of my head. It's
0: long. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really long tag on the poster.
1: <laughs> but again, it was I think Paramount was trying to sell the audience what they were hoping the movie would be, not actually what the movie is. Yeah. But um you can sort of tell in that close up that this is an older version of Steve McQueen, but boy still really looks good.
0: Yeah. I would have been so curious to see what an 80s Steve McQueen would have been like had he, had he lived, you know. I mean, considering the fact that, you know, Clint Eastwood was like his contemporary and he's still around, you know, you know, making a movie every year, two movies a year in some cases, you know. But imagine what Steve McQueen in the 80s and 90s would have been like. I don't know. It would have been fascinating.
1: Yeah, I, it's, it's interesting that I believe I read someplace that McQueen had said he'd become bored with acting and he had said no to every offer. I think that's why he wanted so much money. The money was kind of the motivator but he also said that he became bored sitting at home. And I think some of these movies, this and the two previous movies, uh, are indicators of the fact that he was a guy who didn't like to sit around. He was a guy who was always in motion. I mean, you know, it seemed that every time he was not making a movie, he was on a dirt bike track someplace. He was, he was always about speed. Now, I gotta tell you, if Tracy Walter is just your sort of average <laughs> movie psychopath, this night vision M16 uh, rig, I, it seemed like a bit much, mm-hmm. beyond maybe what his budget would have been. Yep. But it's, it is very dangerous. Pick up your pants, lady. Oh, and, and Tracy Walter's hair, I'd mentioned this before, was like the way it's styled in the movie, <laughs> and he was going to get it changed. And McQueen said, don't
0: do that three sex pistols
1: it does have kind of a 1980s uh, punkish uh, rock thing going on there mm-hmm. of course with the with the makeup I mean clearly he's just out of his out of his mind
0: yeah he almost uh, anticipated MTV by by a year or so
1: right <laughs> Now again this is another one of those moments where I think the the movie has one of its tone shifts Mm -hmm. where I think this is one of the few well it it is really one of the few moments in the picture where this movie is about death it's not about stunts and movement and evading getting hurt it's a lot more difficult
0: yeah well it's interesting if you if you read the press material when this came out because Steve McQueen and um, uh, Mort Engelberg the producer they did a lot of interviews for this film but they both relied a lot on the, on the phrase, um, a man out of his time. You see that pop up a lot. Um, in, in fact, here's uh, Engelberg, what he said was, Thorson is the last of his kind, a man born into an age to which he does not really belong. Insurance companies won't insure his life. he will receive no social security benefits. He operates under a Supreme Court decision written in 1872. Um, and Steve McQueen said, um, I don't want to make ordinary movies at this stage of my life. A script must really interest me or I won't do it. Unfortunately, it's difficult finding suitable material these days. I was lucky to land the hunter. He's unusual a man out of his time and i guess that's what attracted me to him
1: yeah and i think that in many ways we're seeing a reflection of who steve mcqueen thinks he was and and it reflects his ideas about life although at this point in his life after he had moved to santa paula he started going to church again i think he he changed in in a in a lot of ways he wasn't as self absorbed or Mm self-directed and um i think that this is sort of a i i'm sorry that this is his last movie i mean i really do believe that this is a movie um that it's it's not the best last movie movie for some actors you know like john wayne had the shootest it's far from the worst though it's far from the worst but i think that the bittersweet quality of this movie is I was really happy to have him back back in the day where he was making movies on a more regular basis. Mm-hmm. And I think he probably had at least another 10, 15 years, you know, had his health not, not gone south. Um, because he's just as good, just as interesting as an older version of the younger self, yeah. you know, the younger McQueen. Right. And ultimately, it just made me want more. I think I, as fans, we're selfish. Mm-hmm. We want as much of something that we really like uh, as possible.
0: Yeah, I mean, had he stayed healthy, I mean, I think, say, if you, ever, he, I, I can almost guarantee that had he lived, he would have been offered, say, the role of like Gary in terms of endearment. I'm sure that would have been given to him. Something like that. I, I think he would have, you know, become real like. Sort From of dramatic Hollywood royalty, and it would have taken some more interesting roles. But of course, we'll never know. He,
1: yeah, it might have been one of those things that that movie stars kind of kind of ease into where they're playing lead character parts, mm-hmm. where that their whole career is a version infuses who the character was. Yeah. You know, uh, just to use the uh, Garrett Breedlove uh, example. Reynolds was offered that part and he turned it down yeah. and of course Nicholson took it and made the most of it got an Oscar yep. I I would not be surprised if that's the direction that McQueen had gone in because I think it I think with this movie he was addressing the fact that he wasn't young Steve McQueen anymore he oh, was yeah. addressing the fact that he had he had come along you know uh, and, and had age
0: yeah, I mean, that's that's really the main theme of the film. It's, it's, it's constantly being reminded of the fact that his body's starting to go. You right. Know, that's, 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 that's pretty much the main running motif to the right. film. Right, it's true. It's really
1: true. You know, uh, McQueen made a reference that he felt with this movie he had come full circle. He felt this is where I came in, and referring to playing bounty hunter Josh Randall on Wanted Dead or Alive. Um, I guess if you believe in a certain circular uh, mode of life mm-hmm. this might have been the appropriate last picture for him but as i said before i'm i'm selfish i think he probably hadn't he had at least another 10 movies left in him
0: in the and yeah but it's okay there. And plus I mean, it ends on kind of a sweet note as well you know you've got the whole like rebirth imagery. he's had a long day yeah no kidding <laughs> poor papa
1: Yeah. Well, again, what's nice about this scene is it it was shot in a real hospital. Yep. Um, It wasn't shot in one of those 1970s standing hospital sets that you would see constantly on shows like Starsky Hutch and Police Story and Police Woman. Looks like an L.A. courtroom, though. A little bit, a little bit, but at least it's a location. Yeah. And uh, sort of for this movie, a rare scene at night. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's that's a priceless Mm close-up. You
0: the father? Yeah, and apparently Steve McQueen ad-libbed the last line in this film. So that was not not in any version of the script whatsoever. That Mm -hmm. was something he came up with on the spot.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Again, it's worth checking out some of his early comedies to see sort of where this kind of comes from. The way Catherine Harold has that uh, post-delivery glow.
0: Yeah. Women are always very happy after they've had a (laughs) baby. It's
1: it's a nice moment. And again, it's not the movie that I was expecting, Mm -hmm. but all these years later, it's in the sort of canon of Steve McQueen. By the way, it, to your point, this this feels
0: very TV. Yeah, see what I mean? Yeah, this you feels know? so made for TV. Yeah, yeah.
1: It, it just, you know with the, with the freeze frames and stuff like that yeah. and the simple credits.
0: Next week on The Adventures of Papa
1: Thorson. Right. Yeah. By the way, Lauren Janes uh, worked with McQueen for many, many years and they had a moment later where he just felt, he, he, they had a very heartfelt moment between the two of them where they both sort of admitted that they had great admiration for one another as actors and his men and I think McQueen was in, in many ways saying goodbye because he uh, he was, I think, the lung cancer was designated about a month or so after this movie was done or had been released, yeah. and unfortunately, he didn't last very long. But this is so, I mean, this is so ABC Tuesday night at the movies, yeah. <laughs> and what a great shot for Ben Johnson to go out
0: on. Yep. By the way, I don't, I don't say uh, made for TV as a pejorative. I know some people think that's like a negative thing. It's not bad. It's just kind of... It's I think un, it's, some people make it a pejorative. Right. At the, time it came, at the time it came out, it was used as an insult. But to me, it's not a bad thing. It's just unexpected. You don't expect to see a Steve McQueen movie end like this. Right. It's, just it's absolutely right. You're yeah. absolutely right. Yeah.
1: Oh, music for Chicago. Oh, so there Charles Bernstein's music is actually in this. That's interesting. I don't know that I knew that.
0: And a lot of classical music.
1: But I think it, it was really nice to revisit this and, again, see early work by LeVar Burt, and you can mm-hmm. see what kind of charm he had. Yeah. A great piece of... Tra- Tracy Walters called Rocco Mason. He's the least-looking Rocco I think I've ever seen on screen. <laughs> you know, um, Michael Roberts, Kevin Hagen. You know, these are all guys who you saw constantly uh, on television back in the day. hmm this movie sort of plays almost like an old friend, yeah. In many ways.
0: Yeah. Well, again, that's why I think again having so much cable play back in the day, at least at least from my generation, it helped it a lot. It's if there's something kind of cozy about it. It's like you sort yeah. of take back and watch it, and, and it doesn't even matter when you jump into the film. Like you can sort of pick it up and go as you need to.
1: Yeah, because it is episodic, and it's kind of easy to sort of uh, not lose your place. Yeah. But again, all of this, these special thanks. This was a big deal back in those days. Yeah. Thanks for listening. It was fun to talk nice. about. Thank you, Steve.